Hey, thanks for checking out the Blake Benz podcast. On today's episode, we had Tyler Mankey on the show. He's the author of The Pirate's Guide to Sales. It's an incredible book. You can find it on Amazon. Tyler is an amazing salesperson. If you've been looking for the answer on how to sell your product better, I think you're going to enjoy this episode. Hey, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast. That way you can continue to follow some of these great interviews that we have with incredible people. Enjoy this episode, and I will catch you next week. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Blake Benz podcast. I'm sitting down with Tyler Mankey, who is a lifelong sales guy. He's such a sales guy that he even wrote a book on sales called The Pirate's Guide to Sales. You can check it out on Amazon. It's different from every other sales book because it's a sales book actually written by someone who knows, breathes, and does sales. Tyler, thank you for being here today. I appreciate you, man. Thanks for having me, Blake. I'm excited to be on. I, I love what you're doing. Hey, I appreciate it, man. Well, and I, uh, you know, it's funny because it's been such a whirlwind these last few weeks that I think whenever we were first like figuring out when we would meet, we like chose the date and then I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're good for this day. And it was like a totally different day. And you were like, what's going on here? Is, isn't it this day? And so <laughs> we're finally together. We made it happen. Absolutely. Yeah. I was in Salt Lake earlier this week. So, um, you know, I, I, we all have those weeks that just escape us quickly. So Sure, sure. Well, and I, I have to say, I'm really thrilled to have you on the show because, you know, sales is such a pain point for so many people, especially the new entrepreneur who's never, you know, they're just, they're just passionate about what, about whatever they're passionate about, right? They're passionate about their product or service. They just, you know, they have the dream in their mind. And then like sales almost sometimes feels like, you know, the painful minutia of, oh gosh, why can't I just, why can't I just offer something and people come to my door? How did you get into sales? Yeah. I mean, I, and, and I think I can relate to that, you know, on, on various different levels. Um, but I would say that sales sort of chose me. And, uh, the reason I say that is what I originally had intended for my life was to be a doctor. And so, um, I come from a family of doctors, um, a, a lot of surgeons in my family, radiologists, and there's a lot of, uh, you know, my mom's a nurse. There's a lot of people in the medical field. And um, I struggled mightily with school. So um, not, not to the degree where I was ever failing. I, I always found a way to get by. Um, but it was really college um, where, you know, I sort of hit a roadblock. So with, with medical school or pre-med, uh, I shouldn't say medical school, I never made it that far, but when you're in pre-med and all your classes are specific um, and, and let's just call it a spade a spade hard, um, <laughs> that, that's sort of where I hit my roadblock. So I switched to business and, um, and then it wasn't until after I got my MBA and I was at, uh, in device sales that I figured out that I had some learning disabilities. And um, so the beauty in, in figuring that stuff out is after a lifelong journey of sort of fixing the problem myself, to, to have a diagnosis and to get some professional help, um, you know, really made me into a hyper learner. So I started kind of relearning everything. So. That's exciting. 
Yeah, what's interesting is that I've always been very entrepreneurial as well. I mean, even from a kid, I'd have all these little business ideas. And, um, you know, I remember one year I wanted a, a go-kart when I was a kid. And I grew up on a farm and and, uh, and my dad said, we, you can have a go-kart if you can raise the money. And I think he thought that was just like going to be a joke. And my my cousin and I, who also, she she's uh, vice president of a company out in Vegas. Um, we, we raised the money ourselves in the summer through various, uh, different entrepreneurial endeavors. What was and, the best um, thing you did that summer? Where'd, where'd the most money come from? Uh, selling golf balls. So I had an uncle that worked at a golf course and we would wake up at 5 AM and go hunt golf balls and then clean them up and sell them to the golfers when they were coming in for like, you know, six, seven bucks a dozen. Um, yeah. So that, that was primarily how we made the money. But, you know, it's, it's kind of fun to hear your side of the story in terms of, um, you know, sort of recognizing how you learn best sort of opened up this excitement around learning. And I, I, I actually used to be a teacher and a lot of people don't know that I was a teacher in Houston, Texas, and it's always a bit, uh, it's unfortunate when you talk to someone who's gone because because there was never it sounds like someone in high school or even someone in college who who tried to help you learn the best way you could and it's it's a bit of a shame that there was so much lost time I guess. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting is uh, so I, I'm the father of three now, and my oldest got diagnosed with uh, dyslexia and ADHD, like his dad. And you know, when you're going through that process now, he's he's eight. And his teachers right away in first grade were like, he's brighter than his test scores. No one ever said that to me. Um, you know, so in essence, his scores were average, but they noticed that he was not finishing on time and, and picking up on little things. And I think as a society, we progress and we get better. And, um, you know, we can already tell just from the different um, ways that they can, you know, teach and, and that people learn that he has just made tremendous strides. I mean, he, you know, kid has a top 1% IQ apparently. Uh, but, um, you know, he's getting average scores. And then all of a sudden this year, now that he's gone through um, Gillingham and some of the other different uh, learning methods, uh, he's, his standardized scores are already, you know, going up into the percentages of like above average. Mm. So, um, yeah, it's it's definitely an interesting thing. I just think that we've progressed and we're learning more about how different people learn differently. Well, even like from like a business perspective, I, I it's it's a bit exciting to see um, us be more. I don't know if it's fair to say like less traditional, but just just discovering, I guess, new methods to be successful. Because so like when I went to college, there wasn't any kind of like entrepreneurial major or like really a major. Um, there wasn't like a major initiative around entrepreneurship. And now at my school, there's, we have what's called the Brewer Entrepreneurial Hub. And it's this like incredible space where, you know, students who are majoring in entrepreneurship and they have like, they even have like, you know, the, um, the uh, drywall that you can do, uh, you know, the, the Sharpie on, not Sharpie, but uh, Expo yeah. markers, you know? And so it's yeah. like really like fancy and cool. And I just, I thought, and I've, I do some work over there and volunteer over there. And I was telling the guy who's in charge of it, I said, man, I would have killed for something like this when I was in college. Because when I was in college, 
what happened to me was it was a little bit of an opposite story of you. So I was in college and my very first year I was talking to my advisor and she said, well, what do you want to major in? And I said, I think business. And I really think I like marketing. And she goes, ooh, no, you don't want to do marketing. You don't want to do business. It's, it's just not too many people do business and you wouldn't be competitive enough, which right. I was like, oh, all right. <laughs> I don't know if that's not hyper specialized enough. Yeah. I guess so. Yeah. And, and which is also interesting because our school here, it's like a top 20 business school. I mean, it's a great university. So yeah, you're right in the hub of uh, P&G, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We got a really massive uh, supplier community here. P&G, General Mills, you know, Kimberly Clark, all these other businesses. And uh, so anyway, she said, I think you need to go like into the sciences. So I actually went pre-med and I was pre-med all the way till my senior year. And then I was like, I don't even like medicine. Like, what am I doing? <laughs> actually, I shadowed a doctor for a week and he was a surgeon. And I was like, I don't like this at all. And so then I went and became a, a high school science teacher because that's the next route I was most qualified in. Uh, now, years later, I'm back to business, which was my original desire. So, anyway, yeah. Life has story. a funny way of working. I guess and, so. Um, I, you know, do you know the story of the fidget spinner? No, uh-uh. I, I think I have. I think I FOMO'd on one, though. And my wife, I guess this would have been like three or four years ago when they were like super hot. I bought one and it was $45 and my uh-huh. wife was like, what is wrong with you? And I was like, yeah. it's really, it's really cool. Watch. Right. I don't even know where it is now, you know, but yeah. so what, what's the story? Well, well it, it perfectly might tie into what we're talking about here. So um, originally that thing was patented. I don't know by who, um, but it just, this story comes to mind, but originally it was patented for uh, kids with ADHD. And so, um, you know, the fidget spinner and the concept of having something tangible to play with. Um, you know, if you watch me, you know, if this was hands up, you know, my hands are always fidgeting and I'm always picking and playing with things. And really it's helping you stay focused. But in essence, the, the challenge was uh, if you think about a kid with ADHD and you give them something in class um, that makes them different than everyone else. Um, you know, that can be good and bad, especially when you're, when you're young, everybody sort of wants to fall into the social norms. And so it didn't take off because, you know, you would be seen as different. And, um, as the story goes, I guess they tried for years and years and years to get that fidget spinner into schools because it would help a lot of kids and it failed. So it wasn't until after the patent expired, um, that toy companies picked it up. And then, of course, without a patent, you know, there's no proprietary, um, there's no, there's nothing proprietary behind it. And so it sold for three, four, five, well, I guess you bought one for $45, but that must have been one of the, <laughs> the first, uh, the first ones. But um, yeah, I mean, it just went to mass uh, production and, and took off and, you know, so I'm sure it helps a lot of kids still to this day yeah. that, that have ADHD, but the, the original intent, just like our original intents to be, you know, doctors or uh, um, in business is not always what comes out to be. Yeah. Well, I think I was being so obnoxious about it because I think they had like the three, four, five dollar ones. And I think I was like, I think I'm pretty sure what happened was I saw somebody like on a Sunday morning at church, like a kid using it. And I was like, that looks really cool. So mm-hmm. I think I found like a YouTube channel where it was like, 
this guy was like a fidget spinner aficionado. Like mm-hmm. he had like all these other ones and he's like, this is the cool one. And so, uh, I totally FOMO'd. I mean, I'm just, just shamelessly. I was like, yes, I have to get it. But it, it, but, go ahead. No, I went one last point on that too. And I think it ties to sales and messaging, you know, um, entrepreneurs, um, I don't know if this has been your experience, but they tend to be very creative. They'll have a ton of ideas. Um, they will, they're often the people that change the world. But uh, to your point at the onset, when it comes to selling, um, we're exposed to so much. We're inundated with, I think they say 6,000 advertisements a day. So your message has to be very uh, clear. You have to hit with your target audience and that's tough for entrepreneurs. So I think when it comes to selling, the key is to boil down your message into the essential elements and then know and understand your target audience uh, extremely, extremely well so that you can connect with them. And, and so, uh, you know, I think it's interesting where we started this conversation with the fidget spinner because it, its original intent failed because, um, you know, they couldn't connect with their audience. Well, and it's, it's, it's a bit interesting to think about because even to the point of even when they became viral, schools were actively banning them, you know, and right. saying you can't have them. In. So it, it, to me, that communicates it, that that target demographic would never have worked in terms of, you know, selling to the schools directly. Right. But it, it does feel like sometimes as business owners, we get so uh, obsessed is probably too strong of a word, but we get so singularly focused on who our customer is for the product we have when we miss a really clear opportunity. And you know, it's, it's, what's kind of funny about this is it feels like there's so many examples of things that be, you know, so like toy companies, for example, picked it up and it became viral. Something like that feels a bit obvious in hindsight. And it's amazing right. how often that happens where, you know, either the company goes out of business or someone else, a competitor, you know, pitches it to a different market and it just catches on. And it's kind of like, well, how did that, how did that happen where the original seller or the, the creator, whoever missed it. And it, it does feel like we get so either in the weeds or, you know, focused that we were unable to really think about it objectively. Yeah. I mean, one of my favorite books of all time is uh, Made to Stick by Chip and Dan Heath. Are you familiar with that one? Yeah. I yeah, have not so, just used his PowerPoint template for like all the PowerPoints I do. <laughs> yeah. And so obviously since you read it, you know, the premise of the book is, you know, why some things catch on and others don't. And, um, and really, if you look at the science behind the things that catch on versus the things that don't, there's a lot of sim- similar elements. Um, you know, there's an emotional connection. Um, anytime you can connect with people on an emotional level um, and pull at their heartstrings or have them feel uh, different or you know, any sort of emotional tie, there's, there's a connection there. And then, um, you know, there's a huge social norms aspects to things. So, you know, um, I play, I play music and one of my favorite analogies is like, if you're a street performer, you've got your guitar box open, you're, you're out there playing on the street. If your guitar box is empty, um, you're not likely to have many people. It's tough to get that first person to drop the coins in or the dollars in. Not that I've ever done street performance. Just to use the analogy here, but uh, so often, you know, you you know, or or if you're in a like a Nashville bar or something, you'll see the the tub of dollars. 
so you know they would always put some money in there so that it looks like others have done so so that um and that's playing to the social norms um but there, there was an episode of uh um what was that show that trump did um why, why am I drawing a blank? The show with entrepreneurs. Um, Tank? No, that Trump did. Um, oh, oh, uh, undercover, uh, not undercover. Uh, the, the Apprentice. Apprentice. Yeah. The Apprentice. There was a show, there was an episode of The Apprentice where the street vendors had a day to come up with a product and a street vending product. And the team that had the most sales won. And the team that won, uh, they spent their entire marketing budget to go and acquire their first set of customers and they just paid them to stand around the food truck and eat and look happy and excited. So it looked like they had the hot product and that drew people to the truck because they're like, there were other um, teams on that show that had similar food trucks and products that weren't selling anything just by having a crowd around your food truck. Um, it drew people in. So I think there's a huge aspect to, you know, um, creating that social norm or getting well, people to see that they're, if other people see value in it, then you're more likely to think there, there must be value. I mean, it's amazing how many things we, yeah, we immediately perceive as valuable simply because everyone else wants one, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think a great example of this in terms of like a brand that's doing really well in this area. I mean, think about the people who line up for an iPhone. Or the right. people who camp out before a Chick-fil-A store opens. I mean, and, and these products are fine, but, but there is a, a little bit of an element of, you know, or even the Popeye's chicken sandwich. It's, it's, it's a decent sandwich. I mean, I wasn't like blown away, but I felt this feeling of, man, I have to try one. I've got right. to get one because it's so, you know, it's so viral in today's, you know, current, current uh, circumstances. And so there is, I, th I think you're right. I think there is an element of where, you know, social norming creates quite a bit of a buzz around a product. My question to you is, it feels like there's a bit of an ethical dilemma there in the sense of, and I see this a lot in guru culture today, you know, which are the people, typically it's like a 19 year old, but it's the people who are on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, wherever, and they're talking about incredible success and they're talking about you know, here's, here's some reviews, here's testimonials. And it's, you know, people who are like, oh my gosh, I became, I was, I was selling my body on the street and now I'm a multimillionaire because, you know, this person taught me how to run Facebook ads or, you know, whatever these things are. Right. Yeah. And, but it, but it's a friend of theirs and right. like, the reviews are friends of theirs. And, and, and I'm not, I'm not against like your friends helping you out or anything like that. But what I do have a problem with, and when I'm curious your perspective, it feels like it feels like we understand that and we even understand the emotional component that people typically buy when they are emotionally engaged more than logically engaged. How do you use that to sincerely deliver a product that they need and it's going to benefit them without manipulating them and taking advantage of them? Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's a great point. I think that the beauty of um, consumers is that they're pretty smart. And so... Um, you know, hopefully, I think in, in a lot of instances, this is true, but hopefully people sniff out the fakes pretty quickly. Um, to your point, there, you, you have to have your first set of customers, your first set of users for anything. And, um, and if you do things right and ethically 
and get them to, you know, you get a sort of core word of mouth, um, things can sort of naturally or organically grow. But those that try to hack the system, you know, I guess to use an example would be, um, you know, I think I'm not a huge social media buff. Uh, I'm sort of new to it, but I remember like when Twitter came on the scene and Instagram and I'm sure this stuff still goes on. You could like buy friends, you know, you could buy followers and um, you know, but then somebody comes in on the flip side and sees that that's a problem or, or maybe just tries to play their own game and they will make all these fake, um, fake users that will then spoil the entire you know, experience that you were trying to create because it wasn't genuine or authentic. So, you know, I think my experience in life is that um, behind every good, there's also bad, you know, everything's sort of in balance and in, uh, in play doesn't always happen immediately. But, you know, my hope would be that anyone that tries to take a disingenuous uh, approach to selling, it's going to come back and bite them in the butt. Um, I mean, and I, I think it often does. Uh, but, you know, I know for myself, uh, I think that in today's world, it's far too expensive and far too competitive to constantly be acquiring new customers. You want to create a strong core or, a, you know, the key word, coined, coined word right now is tribe, you know, what, who's your tribe? And then they sort of help spread the word for you. Um, Good luck creating a tribe if uh, if you're a phony or a fake, you know. So um, you can't just go out and acquire new customers each and every time. You got to treat your customers right and have a lot of organic growth, have a lot of conversations, have a, get a lot of feedback. Um, you know, if you make a mistake in your early iterations of a product, you know, making that right by your early customers. And, and bringing them along on the journey with you. So I think there's a fine line between um, social norms and getting that organic growth and that organic word of mouth, and but also, you know, doing it the right way and, and using integrity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because to your point, you know, the one thing that um, when I was going into sales that I hated about it was um, I could think of all the times I'd been sold and, and absolutely you know, despise salespeople. You know, I remember like the first couple years, I, I might still say this, you know, there's times when I go in to sales encounters where I'll say, look, I started off hating salespeople because I was thinking of all the bad ones. But yet most of us love to buy stuff. I mean, you bought a $45 fidget spinner and maybe that didn't feel that great, but there's been plenty of purchases in your career and life where you're like, God, I love, I love this. I love the experience. You know, I feel that way about Chick-fil-A, um, to use that example. You know, it's a, it's a pretty good chicken sandwich, but at the same time, you, you know, good. they're very ethical. Um, it's always a very happy crew of people, great customer service. They, they do all the other things right. Yeah. So. Man, you know, it's, it's funny to think about that because you're right. It's, it's, and it makes me think of um, something similar to what you said. I was part of this entrepreneurial group and someone said, hey, I can't find any customers. No one can afford what I have. And someone else wrote, you know, you're full of crap. People love to buy stuff. Go out yeah. and sell Go out and sell to them. Go out and find the people who, you know, want to actually buy what you have because they're there. 
ideally, right? I mean, sometimes you have people who, and especially in like the startup world, you know, they have their perfect product and then they realize no one actually wants this or no one actually needs this. Uh, but I think that's a separate conversation. But yeah, I think, I think finding those people and recognizing, you know, you can be a good salesperson, but not be salesy or be, you know, the despicable car salesperson that you think of, right? I and mean, that's why I didn't, I'm the same way. I mean, when I first got into sales, I really hated it because I always envisioned the slimy sales right. guy, right? Yeah. And then what's funny to me is the way I, the way I originally started to sell was a almost not even indifferent because I, I wanted them to have what I was selling, but just a very like sort of, you know, here's my cards laying it out on the table in front of you. And, you know, Hey, I'm like, we're gonna have a conversation and I am going to ask you to buy from me. And if you don't, if you don't want it, that's okay. You know, we can, we can keep having lunch or, you know, whatever. It doesn't have to be anything weird. And uh, it felt like sometimes when I disarmed people in that way, it made them more eager to actually listen yeah. to me and buy from me. Uh, yeah. So, strange. well, and first off, I mean, I think, you know, I've, I've done a complete 180. So now I'm very passionate about sales. Uh, but what's interesting is, you know, at the onset, when we were talking about when it comes to entrepreneurship, sometimes that's the piece that people are missing. And they, you, you know, it's, we all need to understand why we're doing something. And so um, when it comes to entrepreneurship, you're, you're solving a problem for somebody. So once, I mean, obviously if you've got a product and it truly has a market, there's people who create products where there is no market, but if you're solving a problem and you've got a product that solves a problem and others can quickly see and identify that problem it solves, um, then it becomes very simple. I think the challenge that people get in is they'll think they have this idea and it's the next great thing and, and people don't want it. And so that's where they start pulling it, grabbing at straws, trying to find a way to connect with their audience. So I think first and foremost, you got to have a product that people can recognize and identify the problem that it solves immediately. You know, and if you can't do that. It's not going to work. Um, right. And speaking of the audience, it also feels like people have, and you said something earlier, I can't remember your phrasing, but I really appreciate what you were talking about on, it was almost like this um, importance of being simple and how you approach your, your selling your product in the sense of sometimes we, we get too creative or we get too uh, eloquent about what mm -hmm. we're selling. And I, I see it happen in two ways. I, and I even struggle with this because I, I tend to be a wordsmith and I like to write and and I'll write, you know, this is what I'm selling. And then I'm like, this makes no sense. Like, what the heck even is this, right? So I, right. I, I get it. But, um, you know, either, either using language that doesn't make sense to the actual customer, i.e. So I do a lot of like management coaching. So I might, you know, when I first started, uh, I had gotten some advice from someone who was like, you should call it, you know, you're creating a high profit employee. And mm -hmm. I was talking to a manager and then he was like, I don't, I don't call my people that like what right what yeah i, I see yeah, what you're saying but like what do you what do you mean the other thing separate from being too creative is really narrowing down that niche feels like a struggle for people you know narrowing down that target audience where you know i was talking to one guy for example and i said who's your customer and he goes men and women on the internet and i go yeah <laughs> okay too broad you yeah, know, even when you go to do your first ad, it's going to say oh, 330 million people. Yeah try, yeah. try getting a little more specific. So, but it, but what's interesting in his mind, that was so crystal clear. It was so specific and it's, 
it's odd to me how there's such a disconnect sometimes between what we perceive about how we talk about our business and who we sell to, and then like what actually what people see that as, you know, especially right. with 6,000 ads coming out per day. A lot of times it's just a lot of noise. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's why the dogfood.com exists and I, what, you know, very specific websites. You're like, that's very specific, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. The, the coffee drinkers of Monday morning.com. It's like, yeah. You know, so I, I think there's always this, um, challenge that we we face in entrepreneurship of see you know we're we tend to be visionary and we can see where things can go in the 15 different directions and the 12 different products and um the challenge with that is is that you know you can't be everything to everyone or um create something of true value um all at once so you sort of you know my my tagline on my my linkedin is is start small dream big for that reason because um, you cannot, you, you have to hyper-focus at first. You, you just have to. Um, and it's for somebody who has ADHD, you know, that that's obviously a challenge for me. Um, well, and like you all put 75 words around something that only needs one. Um, and so I've had to learn over time, you know, how to do that. What's your advice to like the entrepreneur, for example, who they feel like when you tell them to like drill down, and to really grab onto one thing. And I'm sure you've seen this before too, but sometimes I, I give this kind of advice and you, you can hear it in their voice where it's almost like you've killed the dream. Disappointing, yeah. Yeah, because in their mind, it is the dream big, which there's right. nothing, that's natural. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's the dream big and it's, it's I see all of these things, but you're telling me I, ha- I have to only do this one piece and now these other things, it's like, it's like I'm not allowed to. I, I can't dream about it anymore. And I see that happen sometimes when people, they get, it, it's almost like I've punched them in the gut. And it's not that it's gone forever. It's just, you know, hey, right now we need to focus on this. Do you have any advice to someone in that area who's really struggling with, I guess, letting go of some things for just right now so they can really focus and grow? Yeah, I mean, I, I can relate to that. Um, you know, it's not something I publicize a lot because it, 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 it was by all intents and purposes a failure, not in my mind, but um, the furthest I, I made it from an entrepreneurship standpoint was um, I developed an app. We got up to like 10, 10 employees, made it, you know, in front of venture capitalists. Um, but the, the nutshell, of the product was, it was called Bill Busters. And so if you think back a few years um, when cutting the cord was coming around, what the product would do is you would enter in your usage and habits, which channels you liked, um, you know, how many people are in your household, all your usage and habits. And then there were two buttons, click and save. And um, all the survey was, was just to understand you as a customer. But then the, the algorithm would tell you what you should be paying with your current providers, be it your cell phone providers, your cable providers, what have you, what you should be paying with them. And then um, another alternative. And so if you hit the save button, um, you would fill out a short form. And we, were, we had a team that would renegotiate your contracts on your behalf because we've all, you know, had that painful experience of being on line, you know, on, on the phone with the cable provider for a long time. Well, it's the worst when um, you're just like, I want to cancel. And it's like right. 20 minutes of please just let me cancel. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah. continue. No, and or you can click this switch button 
and there'd be a short form and, and uh, we would pick up the affiliate, con- you know, affiliate from AT&T or um, the, the provider. And, um, you know, as much as people love that product and that concept, I'll, I'll get to the problem here in a second, but um, it, it was really simple and it worked. And we had a ton of initial customers, you know, you, you hit switch and we'd pick up the affiliate, you hit save, we had a p- team of people renegotiate your contract. So our problem was less messaging, it was more that broad um, issue. And so if you think about this, uh, we're, we're at Christmas se- season, so I, I remember using this analogy at the time. Elf on the Shelf, you familiar with that? Mm-hmm. So um, Elf on the Shelf comes out you know, once a year and you know your target audience and you know when they need it you know, right around Christmas time. So that works. Well, we were elf on the shelf and you didn't know what day Christmas was coming. So it was something that everyone needed or could use, but they were only going to use it once like elf on the shelf. And we had no idea, no idea what day Christmas was going to be because Christmas is when you get a contract hike or maybe your cable went out. You really need that pain point because most days you're not thinking about switching your, your providers. Um, it's, it's that day that you are willing to switch. And so if you have to market to people 365 days out of the year to get a one-time customer, it's too expensive. Yeah. Cause so that guess. lends itself to the problem. Um, you know, you, you, uh, so we started trying to build out different ways to, you know, different products like for cell phones and, and stuff like that to where we would be able to get more, um, you know, return business but it's still only something that's going to be used infrequently. Mm-hmm. So it kind of lends itself to the need to have a product that, you know, has a residual behind it. Mm-hmm. But um, so I think there's various problems in entrepreneurship. I mean, you have to have a clear, concise message. You got to clearly solve a problem, but then you also have to have a very defined target audience um, and, and some sort of residual usually. Mm-hmm. Some way to retain customers. Well, and it goes back to what you said on, you know, building your tribe, which I'm a bit, I'm a bit over that phrase yeah. because I had a, I had a boss who always talked about it. He's like, who's in our tribe? I'm like, I don't, right. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, you know, actually with that, I, I think it comes from Seth Godin's book tribes, which yeah. he based it on, uh, the Kevin Kelly article, 1000 true fans. That's exactly and, right. Uh, yep. Which, which I really prefer is, you know, yeah. how, how are you building your thousand true fans or I call it your thousand raving you know, raving fans or raving customers. Um, it, it does seem like the businesses who are going to make it long-term are the ones who are mindful of how they're converting, you know, the average customer to that true fan. Because uh, yeah. if Kevin Kelly is right, and he seems to be right, because so many people are writing about him, those thousand true fans are enormously more profitable than any one-time, you know, new customer, what have you. And it seems like some people don't really necessarily think about that or to quote one business owner who went out of business, uh, if my customers don't like what I'm doing, they can go somewhere else. And mm-hmm. we did, <laughs> you know, yeah. they went totally somewhere else. Right. Yeah. But I think we lose sight of the, and I had a boss who I always appreciate his perspective. He called it the nurturing of your customers. Not that they need to be parented, but, right. but you're nurturing the relationship and you're keeping, you're keeping something alive there beyond just the point of sale, you know, where you don't just show up again when you're ready to sell the next thing, but you're, you know, you're developing that relationship and you're building that brand in their eyes. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it's a very long answer, but to, to succinctly answer your question as, as it pertains to, you know, advice for, for somebody who, you know, you're coaching or managing around um, that, that entrepreneurship and that big vision, you know, that's, that's why my tagline it is the start small dream big. I, I, I don't think you ever want to hear or be told not to think about all those things. You, you certainly can have those big visions of taking your product, you know, this direction, that direction. Um, but an, at least initially you need to have that hyper focus on something smaller and do that really, really, really well. And then you'll kind of see that you organically follow, you know, I think entrepreneurs are entrepreneurs are great with vision. And so a lot of times that initial vision that they had may come to fruition. So you don't need to lose sight of it, but you just need to initially, you know, be more hyper-focused and hyper, you know, small. I, I think it takes, I think for the successful entrepreneurs, there has to be a level of diligence around, I'm going to be patient with putting this, just putting this one element that I'm dreaming about aside for now until right. I've built momentum in other ways. And then that'll let me, you know, expand down and do something else, I guess. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about the book. You know, it's, I think it's always impressive when someone publishes a book, I have it pulled up on Amazon. Uh, I have to read for the listeners this quote that I think is just incredible. A modern day, how to win friends and influence people that will help you sell the right way. How to Win Friends and Influence People is a timeless book. It gets recommended a lot. I actually just recommended it to someone yesterday. And so to have this said about your book, that's, a, that's an incredibly, um, it's just an incredible line. It's, it's such an, an honorable thing to have so, on there. What, tell me a little bit about the book and how that came sure. about. So, well, in the art of full transparency, because that's usually where I start too, um, you know, that, that was a, a good friend that read it that came up with that quote. So it's a true quote. And I, I do believe that to be um, true about the book. And I'll explain that more in a second. But uh, by no means would I ever call myself a Dale Carnegie. Um, <laughs> you know, that's one of my favorite books of all time. And, um, you know, to, to writ so, written something I, that might be approaching almost like 80 years old. Um, you know, to have it still be so applicable today is, uh, is, is just awesome. But, uh, you know, the, the likeness would be in the fact that, you know, the beauty in that book, how to win friends and influence people is that, um, it's full of stories, you know, from Abraham Lincoln all the way down to, you know, lesser known individuals and stories typically help you identify with and remember key concepts. Um, and so that was something I tried to, to capture. Um, and so the premise of the book was about five years ago in an effort, you know, I realized that through all the sales training, I've been in medical sales, um, for, you know, a dozen years and everything that I learned, um, you know, had very little to do with specific sales trainings or sales books and much more to do with what I learned from others around me, you know, people like yourself and everyone I encountered. And uh, so I wondered if there'd be a way to accelerate that learning process. So I started going out and interviewing people um, and using the idea of a book to get in touch with some, some of my favorite authors and business people. 
and to get in touch with other top sellers from around the country. And I just interviewed them. And so then it's called the Pirate's Guide to Sales because we took all the best ideas and pirated them for the book. <laughs> and, uh, and then um, it's all in a very storied format. So the first half of the book is uh, Voyage Prep. And, um, you know, very few sales books do any good um, preparation. It's typically about some sort of method. I don't think there's any single method. There's a human on the other side of the interaction. And I think it's disingenuous to think that you can sell them with some sort of method. Um, but you can do the legwork that no one else is doing uh, to understand their business and, um, and, and get to a place where you can go into that encounter and bring them immediate value. So that's the first half. Uh, and then the second half is six points of sale, which kind of talks about um, there are six stages in the sales process um, that are worth touching on, and it and it covers from opening to closing and all points in between. So um, that's kind of the the framework of the book. You got voyage prep and how to prepare to bring people value, um, and then the the six points of sale, and it all leads to the anchor. The anchor being um, the why somebody would want to buy. Um, so when you uncover that, everything becomes very simple. Well, that last bit you just said answers my next question because the subtitle I see here says, A Seller's Guide for Getting From Why to Buy. And yeah. I assume that's related to what you just said. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the one thing I'll say about that, though, is um, I don't get me wrong. I absolutely love everything Simon Sinek puts out there. Uh, but he was not the guy who... Um, did start with invented, why? Invented why. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and I'm not going to say who, who knows who did invent that concept, but um, that I speak a little bit about that methodology in the golden circle in, in the book, but the real value I've seen is in Lean Six Sigma. Are you familiar with that? I, I'm, I, I'm familiar enough with it to uh, talk about it as if I do, but, but no. <laughs> okay. I talk a lot about just lean manufacturing and, and being lean. Gotcha. Uh, but, but go ahead. So um, I have a, a lean bronze certification. Um, you can go all the way up to like black belts. But um, to, to make a long story short, what, what's beautiful about um, Lean Six Sigma, it all comes from Japanese manufacturing. And um, what, what you would love, you know, I, I, and I think most people love about their philosophy was um, it starts with um, two, two main concepts. Um, I mean, there's a million, but two biggest things go to the Gemba. So do you remember the show Undercover Boss? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Great show. So, so go to the Gemba. Gemba is, there's Japanese terms because that's where, you know, it's coming from Japanese manufacturing, but Gemba literally means to go to the place where the work happens or, or where everything happens. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that almost no one does in selling, and it is the most valuable tool in your, in your uh, toolbox, is observation. So give me a product. Uh, Twizzlers. Twizzlers. Give me a different product. <laughs> <laughs> I stumped you. Uh, how about a TV? A TV. So if you were to try to understand how you could, let's say we were, we were going to uh, sell some sort of new technology to, to Samsung. 
um, you would conjure up in your head why your product would potentially be of value to Samsung, right? Mm-hmm. And then you'd come up with some sort of plan how you're going to present that. Mm-hmm. You, you could be dead wrong. Um, and that's where 90% of salespeople are, you know? So instead, what you could do is you could use observation as what I would like in the Trojan horse. So hold with me here because I'll, I'll get to the point. But in essence, what you would say is, okay, Samsung, I have something that I feel very confident will be of value to your business. But I don't want to pretend that I know exactly how it's going to fit. I want to understand your business first. So I'd like to go to the shop floor and spend a couple hours and understand how your business works, how everything fits, all of it fits together. And I'll I'll type up a report um, and I'll identify things that make sense as it pertains to my product and things that have nothing to do with my product. This, irregardless of whether we come to terms of agreement on my product, you'll get some value out of this. People will let you do that uh, more often than not. So then you've already got your first and second appointment um, set. Your first being you got in with your Trojan horse. Your second being you, you get to deliver the report. And now you know the customer's business like no one else. Um, and so, you know, a good portion of uncovering the why is the things you would do in that observation to make the most out of that time that they do give you to, to learn their business. Um, so that's, that to me is, is something that almost no one does and there's tremendous amount of value. And, um, you know, it's too easy to just say, start with the why. Um, cause I think a lot of people try to do that, but they're missing the why. Well, and it's, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a Dale Carnegie approach where, you know, the reason Samsung lets you do that is not because, yeah, you seem like a nice enough guy. Sure. You know, we'd love people. It's, it's because of the report that they, they see a, an opportunity of, Hey, this, this random person who's unbiased and objective is going to give me some insight on my shop floor that maybe. I'm blind to because it's my own business, right? And so I think I think even the fact that you're framing it to their benefit where you aren't taking from them, you're not directly selling to them. I mean, it's it's very much Dale Carnegie of how to win friends and influence people and in that you are, even in being observant, you're framing it to their benefit because um, some people aren't, you know, some people aren't, I guess, kind enough to just let some random person yeah, learn everything you can about my business. Um, so I, yeah, I and there, there, it would be hard for me to cover this on a short inver- interview, but there are um, there are ways to propose that and examples that you can give from other customers that um, you'll be surprised how many people will let you do that if you uh, if you propose it the right way. Um, well, it's even the I think about the um, cold emails that typically do well in like digital marketing, or when someone, or even like web design, where the person, rather than like sending the email that says, "Hey, will you work with me, please?" It's the person who says, "Hey, I, I'd love to give you a free, um, you know, a free review of your website or a free review of your, you know, uh, ad account or." You know, things like that where people feel like they're getting value from the get-go. I, I think that, that typically it feels like that creates trust in the short term so that you can effectively make the sale in the long term. Yeah, yeah or if you're trying to get um, your favorite authors on the phone like I was trying to do. You, you don't 
just reach out to them and say, hey, can I get you on the phone? You know, you, they've got a thousand people a day asking for that. Six months before you want to get them on the phone, you're asking them, um, you know, I, I've read all your stuff. This is my favorite thing. You know, I've often wondered what if you had to describe, you know, yourself in one word, what you're driven by, what would it be? Engage with them. Mm. And um, and and then you build sort of some value over time. You write reviews on their stuff. You um, follow them. You engage with their content and um, and you build a little bit, you know, value for them um, prior to to, you know, asking if you can have 10 minutes of their time on the phone. Yeah. So, and, and then sh- the second, schmooze them a little bit. <laughs> well, it's, it's less schmoozing. I mean, schmoozing is something we all do. It's more, um, you're, you're giving them something of tangible value. Um, sure. you know, anytime you engage, um, and, and sort of act like maybe one of their thousand true fans, um, without them having to do much to pick up a new, new fan, you know, that's, that's a value. Um, and se- secondarily, the other big piece, um, since I mentioned too, is uh, it's called Kaizen or continuous improvement. And that's the, the next big thing that I think people miss in sales is they'll, they'll pitch this pipe dream knowing, um, knowing damn well that there is, uh, change is hard, right? I mean, anytime you change anything, it's, it's going to have some pain. And so you have to set expectations of where, um, you know, you've experienced in the past, you know, look, Samsung, you know, now that we've come to terms and you're going to be implementing this new process or new widget to your TVs, um, you know, I want to set some expectations on the areas where um, we're going to have to continuously improve. And I'm going to help guide you through, you know, this process, because um, if you're trying to create long term customers that will generate word of mouth for you, they're going to very much appreciate, oh yeah, he said this might happen. And when it does the call and that he'll fix it, that, that sounds much different than you told me everything was going to be great, Blake. And now I'm having this problem and that problem. And, you know, I'm going to go back to my old, you know, so (laughs) that that's another piece that people I think are afraid to do and also often skip. It's that expectation setting and that understanding that, you know, there will be some bumps along the way. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Well, I'll, uh, for our listeners, definitely check out the book on Amazon. Tyler, what, what's the best way for people to follow you or continue to engage with you? Yeah. So I, I, like I said, I'm not a huge social media guy, but I've really been trying to, uh, use LinkedIn. I think LinkedIn is, um, quickly become my favorite just because there is a lot of valuable back and forth and a lot of, you know, really great relationships I've formed. I mean, I wouldn't have been able to meet and find you had it not been for LinkedIn. So I would say that's probably the easiest way. Um, But, you know, the website is thepirateguides.com and I'll be putting out more content there. Um, You know, my long-term vision for that is uh, ideas worth stealing. Um, So to to have, you know, other concepts that um, I can get people to, share their best tactics on and, and, and share them with the world. I love it. I love it. Well, Tyler, thanks so much for being on the show today. 
And uh, for our listeners, let me know what you thought. Blake at goodadvicecoaching.com. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast and throw a like up if you enjoyed the episode. Definitely check out Tyler's book, A Pirate's, or excuse me, The Pirate's Guide to Sales, A Seller's Guide for Getting from Why to Buy. Tyler, you've been amazing. I appreciate you. And for our listeners, I will catch you next week. See ya. Thanks, Blake.